and welcome to the Perusia podcast. I'm Shabil Raish, your host, and I have a, a very good friend of mine as our guest this morning. He, um, a little bit about him before I, I, I mention his name. Uh, he's um, not always been a Catholic, not a cradle Catholic, born uh, and raised in the in a Pentecostal tradition, became a pastor in the Pentecostal church. Uh, comes from a long tradition of, of pastors in his family uh, from northern uh, Toowoomba in Queensland. Uh, and then he, and he came to a point in his life where he was, as he discovered um, the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church, he faced his actual congregation to let them know what he was about to do. And he gave up many of his friends, his friendships, even um, lots of uh, work and, and to do this, to give up uh, what he, everything he knew um, to join and, and, and take this step. He's now in the Catholic Church and is part of the evangelization team uh, in the Archdiocese of Brisbane. He's also a deacon in the um, Catholic Church now, and his name is none other than Deacon Peter Pelican. He joins me live right now. G'day. Hey, Chavel. Good to catch up again. Good to see you. I have to say uh, it's so uh, different now. I'm seeing you. You're in your collar. You're a deacon in the Catholic Church. <laughs> Did you think uh, you'd ever be in this position only, you know, seven years ago, <laughs> six, seven years ago? Uh, well, it's a funny thing because, uh, you know, amongst Protestant traditions, it, it's easier to move amongst them as clergy uh, than it is to move into the Catholic uh, tradition. Um, and so, you know, I, I've always had that sense of vocation on my life from since I was about 14 years old. I always had the desire to, to be a pastor and the sense of calling to do that. Um, and so coming into the Catholic Church, I realised that that may well be something that I have to put down completely uh, as a married man. Um, and it was something that I had to really just surrender before God and say, well, you're, you're calling me here to be part of the, the Catholic Church and I have to follow the truth before um, just the opportunity that that truth might bring. And so it was a case of just putting it before God and saying, well, I'll entrust that calling to you and uh, if if you want me to be in that kind of role again, then um, fine. Uh, and so I, I moved towards the... Um, the, the, we have a formation program in Brisbane uh, for for deacons, um, so I was a part of that uh, and ordained as a, a deacon last year. So uh, yeah, it's sort of a, it's an interesting time because I I have some I'm appointed to a parish, a small parish in Baranda, so I do a, a bit of preaching there and do some baptisms and things like that. Uh, and then I run a, an agency for the Archdiocese Evangelization Brisbane, um, which is sort of my core mission at the moment, um, is to, to drive the evangelizing mission of the church forward in the Archdiocese of Brisbane, uh, as much as I can with a, with a team of staff here, uh, that help, help do that. Oh, fantastic. Um, so much has, has happened, um, uh, since you've become Catholic and you've been, as you say now, mm. what a great role, what an important role having you in evangelization. Um, but, uh, I, I'm keen to introduce our viewers and listeners to just a, a bit of uh, an understanding of the journey you've come to get to here. Um, you are a father of five children. Um, and uh, Not as many as you, Charbel. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, we, we don't deserve one, let alone, you know, seven, but uh, True. We, we are very blessed. Um, but, yeah, love to uh, to start maybe a little bit about your background uh, growing up. Um, uh, was your family heavily involved in in the church that you practiced in and maybe let's get a, an understanding of your upbringing a little bit. Sure, yeah. So a bit of background. Um, I almost feel like I was born in church in some respects because, uh, you know, my dad was a Reformed church minister and for those that wouldn't know the Reformed tradition, it's a, a kind of the um, it's a Presbyterian style of church. So it's in the um, 
follows in the footsteps of John Calvin, who was one of the early reformers, um, a contemporary of Luther. Uh, so it has a history of about 500 years in, in that Protestant Reformation time. And so my dad was a Reformed Church minister. My grandfather was also a Reformed Church minister and one of the pioneers of the Reformed Church in Australia. Um, he, he came from Holland. Uh, the Reformed Church is big in Holland. And so that's meant that church has been a central part of my life uh, growing up. Our whole family was involved in church. Uh, we was in some ways the Von Trapps, you know. Uh, Dad was preaching and I was playing music and my sisters were singing. Um, we were always involved in church and in youth groups and in uh, whatever was going on. So Sunday was always a church day for us. The whole family was at church early. We'd be setting up chairs and and uh, music systems and doing rehearsals and small groups and all kinds of things. So very much involved in church um, from the beginning. Um, and then I, I did a, a degree in theology when I came, when I finished school uh, and undergrad, which is kind of the, um, in some respects, it's like a Protestant version of seminary. You know, you live in and you do pastoral formation and you do theology. Um, Protestants don't tend to have as much emphasis on philosophy as, as we do in the Catholic tradition. So in most seminaries, you might do three years of philosophy before you even begin theology. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's a good reason for that too. And it, it creates a little bit of a, um, a gap in understanding sometimes in Protestant traditions that have a, a lower view of, of the power of reason and, uh, and have a, a lesser of an understanding of epistemology, which is why it gets a bit um, sometimes overly focused on scripture at the expense of the church um, and the role of the church and the magisterium and the authority of the church. Uh, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but uh, you're, so how many, how many siblings uh, did you have? Uh, three sisters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My only brother growing up and, and you all went to church. Uh, so your dad, um, I understand, was a pastor. Yeah. And, and his dad, is that mm. correct? Yeah. So, um. Uh, three was it the um, was it the same church from each generation, or would they start their own? Uh, uh, yeah, so um, my grandfather was in the Reformed Church in Holland, and then um, pioneered Reformed churches in Australia, and then my my dad became a Reformed Church minister in about 1988, I think it was. Um, okay, uh, and then he. Um, was a pastor of a couple of churches, one in, in Melbourne in Dandenong and then in uh, Toowoomba. And then he and half the congregation left over a bunch of uh, reasons and began an independent church. Uh, <laughs> that became my welcome to uh, sort of independent churches and also how Protestant churches typically start, which is often a, um, a disagreement in theology or style uh, between pastors or between a pastor and a, and a tradition. Um, and then uh, a new church begins. And depending on the, the competence of that uh, pastor of that new church depends on whether that new church ends up becoming a tradition or not. Um, so by the time I'd finished my undergrad degree, I was outside of the Reformed Church. I was a, a part of this independent um, community that my dad had founded. Uh, and that meant that the career trajectory was not clear. It wasn't like you finished your, your seminary and you knew exactly where you were going. Um, and so I took a role. Then after a couple of years just working as a muso full-time, playing pubs, clubs, weddings, functions, um, I, I then uh, the, the doors opened up for me to be a, the, uh, a pastor at an, it was an ex-uniting church. So it was the uniting church that the whole church together left the tradition of the uniting church over some theological issues. Um, and uh, so I became one of the pastors there. I spent three years there and then I was um, invited to be a um, 
pastor at a uh, Christian Outreach Centre church in Toowoomba, and so I spent six years there. Um, as uh, the sort of, uh, in the end, I was kind of what we we Catholics would call the the parish administrator. So I was sort of, um, uh, my title was campus pastor. So I was sort of leading the community. Um, but then there was also what we would call a parish priest. So sometimes you have a parish in the Catholic world where you have an administrator and a parish priest, and it enables the parish priest then to go and do some other things and not have to worry as much about the um, the parish per se. Um, and I was head of Christian studies and the study of religion in the school that we had connected to the, the church as well. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I did nine years then as a, a Protestant minister in an ordained capacity. And, uh, and, um, and how was that? Did it? How was the church? It was built over the years, and, and uh, how? Um, yeah, how yeah. Look, um, I mean, some great things happened in both those communities. In the ex-uniting church, we were part of a um, a church building program because what happened was the, the when it was a uniting church, they had bought property, and then they left the uniting church. And because it was a uniting church, it meant the property that that community had raised money for and purchased was purchased within the tradition. And so when they left, they actually lost the property they had paid for themselves. <laughs> And so uh, it, we wanted to buy that block of land back. And, uh, I mean, some amazing things happened there. I remember a, a prayer meeting one night where the, the leadership of the church got together and really prayed and said, God, um, make a way there where there is no way. And, you know, you own the cattle of a thousand hills, your, your word says. And um, so can you make a way? The next day we had a donation of $2.4 million, which was the, the amount that we yeah. needed in order to purchase this land. So there were some great things happening in that community. And then in the, um, the Pentecostal Church, Christian Outreach Centre was great things as well. We, we began a youth ministry that uh, is still running today with about 150 kids every Friday night um, coming out and engaging in faith and life. Um, and uh, and so that was a, a lively community. It was a great community to be a, be a part of, um, <clears throat> a great community for family as well, great children's ministry and um, yeah, it was a really fruitful time and enjoyable time. And in that time there at COC, we probably saw about 700 or so young people make a decision to follow Jesus. So it had a real evangelizing edge about it. Uh, but of course, though those communities do really powerful things in terms of engaging people with the gospel and creating, facilitating an encounter with God, some of the really crucial theological substructures and historical and philosophical substructures are not there within the tradition in terms of, um, church authority and the sacramental life is, is not there at all in the way that we understand it in the Catholic tradition. Um, and there's a kind of uh, a looseness, if you like, which which means that much of what might be taught from a pulpit uh, or preached about, and, and of course the uh, you would preach for 30 minutes in that environment, not not seven yeah. to ten minutes. <laughs> so you could say a lot more. Um, many many homilets um, in the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, short and sharp these days. Yeah. yeah, I've had to repackage my homilies. <laughs> um, uh, but um, it, it meant that much of what was taught was dependent a little bit on the interpretation of a given pastor mm -hmm. because you don't have a catechism, you don't have a, a magisterial authority um, that makes. Um, authoritative decisions about what the church might think and believe about a particular subject. And that's why there are so many Protestant churches in the world because you can have, you know, literally 20,000 different interpretations of various aspects of scripture. And so each one of those traditions is often a, um, a representation of either an interpretation of scripture specifically or else a style issue, you know, someone wanted drums and someone else didn't. Yeah, well, uh, they are a little, uh, these are interesting things that maybe, Catholics don't appreciate, but uh, 
yeah, the the, um, the idea of that church was your church in a sense. I mean, of course, mm. um, you 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 made the call on on how it how it ran and and what it did, and uh, and when it came to some theological things, you may have differed from certain other pastors from other churches who um, uh, you may have been friends with. But uh, this is an yeah. interesting point that we have to we mm. can't take for granted as Catholics. Um, uh, there is a, uh, I guess, an authority, and there is a teaching. We have a catechism that teaches us what mm. we, we understand. However, you know, people's interpretation may may take them certain directions, but there is something that grounds us. But absolutely, and it's it's something I think sometimes Catholics tend to not like the authority of the church, mm. or not like the catechism, or or you know don't like particular teaching, and therefore just sort of put them aside. But the authority of the church properly understood is actually really beautiful and really powerful, but it's also consistent philosophically and, and consistent historically. And so what I mean by that is is if you're Protestant and you, um, you, you have the Bible and you recognise the authority of the Bible, right, so the Bible is the word of God, well, how do you know that, that it's the word of God? You know, well, it says it is, and here's the words of Jesus, right? Okay, well, the words of Jesus are in the Gospels, but the New Testament is more than the Gospels. There's, you know, a whole collection of books there. So who chose the books that should be in Scripture? Who chose the books that should be specifically in the New Testament? The Old Testament's easier because it was already sort of codified by the Jews um, before Christ came. So when you mm. talk about, you know, uh, the uh, the law and the prophets, we know what we're talking about. Um, and when Jesus refers to Scriptures, he's talking about the, the Jewish Scriptures. But when the New Testament comes, who makes the decision to say these books are going to go in the New Testament? And if you push hard enough, at the end of the day, that's the church and that's the church council at Hippo that I think in about 393. So you've got nearly four centuries of times from when Jesus walked the earth to when the church said, okay, this is the New Testament. These books are the word of God. And so if you then <coughs> reject the authority of the church, how can you be sure that the church picked the right books? <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe we don't yeah. have the right scriptures, right? And if you're Protestant, maybe we've got the wrong collection of New Testament books um, maybe there's one that's missing that could change everything. You know, maybe there should have been the, the Gospel of Thomas in there. Uh, the church chose not to include the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe that was the wrong decision. And so you have this problem as well. Then it's a twofold problem. One is that if you don't trust the church, how can you trust the Bible? Because it's mm. the church that actually determines which texts end up in Scripture and being called Scripture. The second problem you have is that if, if it's Bible alone, which is a, an essential sort of Protestant mantra, and it came from Martin Luther, Sola Scriptura, um, if, if you say Bible alone, then what do you do with the um, 400 years of Christians that were around before the Bible was um, understood as it is today, before the, the canon of Scripture was developed? So you've got, to, you've got to say, well, there's four centuries there that lived essentially on oral tradition and on the teachings of the, the early popes, um, and uh, early church fathers and priests and the letters being written around. Um, so w what did they base their faith on? And what you'd come to understand historically is that the, the Christianity is a living tradition before it's a written tradition. Uh, yes. And if you don't recognise the living tradition, um, then there's all kinds of question marks about the authority of the written tradition. That, there's a lot in there uh, that I think uh, hopefully people don't miss, uh, but, wow, we yeah. We misinterpret, you know, we've been, a lot of people may think, uh, uh, Christians in general might think we're people of the book and then we talk mm. about the book or even the word. And, and so that's true. It's just understanding what is 
the word we're talking about, and that it's that mm. word that became flesh, isn't it? It's an embodied word, and that's and, it, it's, and it's a both and you know, it's um, yeah. the word of God is not just scripture. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, like an, an easy way to think about it, I think you know, sometimes you get caught up in theological language, but you know, you're you're a father of seven kids, right? Um, you're the father of that family. Two kids disagree on something, and they come to dad and they say, you know. Johnny said this, and well, she said that, and she said this, and yeah. you as the dad, you've got to sort out the fights, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what you do is, is you listen to both parties and you try and ascertain what actually happened. And then you have the authority as the dad to make a decision and to respond to that problem um, and make a call on it. Now, if you don't have the father in the house there or, or any authority figure, a father or a mother, um, and your two kids have a fight, how does it get resolved? It doesn't. They just uh, continue to have a, uh, a, a division amongst them. And so the, the power of the, the Holy Father and the magisterial authority is that, you know, we're both Catholics and we can have a theological discussion and a theological disagreement. And if it's an important point that the church has yet made a de- hasn't yet made a determination on, then the church can respond to that and the Holy Father listens to the arguments and then the, the magisterial authority can give a a determination on it, just like a father does in a local family. And so it, it just makes sense of the world. And it also is entirely um, necessary for unity in the world today. If there's no father of the church who can resolve these kind of disputes amongst us, then unity is not possible. Can I ask a question about the time when you started to explore this idea of authority um, as a pastor? Tell us about um, what you were going through, uh, how, uh, what, what were those steps? Um, what happened in, in your life as a? I mean, things were going well, right, as a pastor, and mm. you had a thriving church. And but then, what was it that really initiated you to, I guess, look into the Catholic Church? Um, yeah, there, there were probably um, a few things that opened the door, and then there were three key steps for me. So the things that opened the door to begin with was a friend of mine um, uh, started talking about this thing called theology of the body. Um, and there's, there's this old Jesuit uh, priest who's now passed away. Uh, God bless his soul, Father Gregory yes. Jordan. Um, yes. And he came up to Toowoomba yeah. a few times and I started meeting with him and getting to know him. And, and he had introduced a, a group of us uh, Protestant friends to this theology of the body. And I found it really, really fascinating and, and not only fascinating but actually quite liberating um, because it, it makes sense of the purpose of marriage, but it also makes sense of the um, the sexual revolution and the world we live in and, and how we got to become such a sexualized society. And it was a simple, um, basically the, the way that I used to explain it to my students, which to me was just so liberating, was <coughs> a simple three questions. First of all, you know, if you were going to have a one-night stand tonight, what were the attributes that you would look for in, in the person you were going to sleep with, right? <laughs> Sounds like a, a bit of a okay. bail question, right? But And so, of course, you know, you got a year, year 12 bunch and so they're writing all the list of the things and it's all skin deep. they got to look this way, they got to hair this long, they got to have a particular body shape, they got to look like a particular um, movie star or whatever, mm-hmm. all right? So we'd write that list on the, on the one side of the board. Then the second question I'd ask is, if you were um, looking for the mother of your children or the father of your children, what attributes would you want in the father or mother of your your future child? And then I'd get them to write that list. And all of a sudden you've got things like respect, honour, faithful, uh, consistent, loving, 
um, you know, financially secure, hold down a good job, uh, don't tell lies. Uh, We've gone from skin deep, you know, just bodily attributes to character. Is the person a good person? Can I entrust them with my child, right? So they become two fundamentally different lists. The third question then I would ask is, what makes it possible to have this first list, the one-night stand list, and not have to think about the second list, the parent list? Um, and the kids had sort of sometimes scratched their heads for a while and one of the sharper ones would go, oh, I know, sir, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh, what do you got? You know, contraception. You're like, exactly, right? Because the only reason that you can think about a one-night stand without having to think about parenthood is mm. because you know that you don't have to worry about children. And what that tells you is that w- whether you're, uh, you know, people get pretty fired up about the, the topic of contraception yeah. and human yeah. vitae and it's a really, it's, it's an issue that people don't like to bring up, even amongst Catholics. Um, yeah. And look, the people that accept it as a teaching, in, you know, uh, statistically amongst baptised is incredibly low as well. But regardless of where you, what you think, you have to recognise the fact that contraception changes the way that community thinks about sexuality. It enables things like Tinder. It enables the one-night stand hookup. And it enables young people to enter into sexual relationships without thinking about parenthood. And that enables all of us to objectify the opposite sex. And so once I sort of saw this, I I was like, wow, this is like so liberating. It just makes so much sense of the problem we have. And when you you get to that that, um, core issue that Humano Vitae addresses, it's actually a, a pathway to a cleansed mind and a cleansed heart about sexuality um, and it helps young people to think properly about marriage and family and it challenges the whole notion of objectification of the opposite sex and also the pornification of of the opposite sex as well. So that was the first step was uh, discovering this theology of the body, realising how powerful it was and how much sense of history it made and how you could track the sexual revolution from the 1930s when the, um, when the Anglicans first accepted contraception as being um, okay in some instances and you can just track it right through to the um, sexual revolution and to where we are today. Great, great um, questioning there. I mean, what a brilliant and simple way of just letting people think the differences there of yeah. how we treat people uh, just purely because of contraception. Yeah. And, and, and what a um, another interesting point is, yeah, as you say, Christians were all united on this point, not a, what is it, 90 years now, um, but Nine years ago, so we're all mm. united on this. We understood um, yep. it was not acceptable. Mm. And once one started, uh, do we know, is it the Catholic Church, um, are they the only ones that uh, talk about or defend the um, the pro-life stance? So are there other any other Christian denominations you know of that? Um, yeah, I think, the, the. I mean, you have to be careful with the pro-life language because yeah. uh, outside the Catholic Church, pro-life tends to, to refer more to abortion uh, yeah, than to yeah. contraception, um, whereas contraception, we, you know, as well as Catholics, we see them as integrated uh, because we recognise as well that you know even statistically, at least in the nineties, I don't have current statistics, but about fifty three percent of abortions were because of failed contraception. Mm-hmm. So there is an obvious link there. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, there's plenty of. Um, you know, plenty amongst the Protestant tradition that are very much with us on on the protection of human life, uh, you know, in terms of um, the problem of abortion and and the horror of abortion and recognizing what it is. But um, around contraception, I think we're the only tradition that really holds the line. 
yeah, um, yeah. on that. And that's partly because, uh, as far as I'm aware, at least, we're one of the only traditions that has a really deep and nuanced theology of human sexuality and anthropology. So, that, I mean, the work of John Paul II in, humano, in the theology of the body is just remarkable. I mean, it's not... Um, it's not formal teaching of the church, right? It's not magisterial, but it's written by a pope, and it's incredibly, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's incredibly uh, insightful, especially from someone who's celibate. You know, he's thought so deeply about human sexuality. It's a remarkable document. But Humanae Vitae itself, as well, it is a very interesting document in and of itself, and it is a magisterial document, and it's yes. worth reading with an open mind. Um, yes. You know, because sometimes people don't like it to even think about the possibility that contraception might be a problem because they know that it's going to have to change the way they live. So it does. It it, it certainly is hard for many um, who don't understand the big picture. And and and, and Saint John Paul II did a great job in in giving us the big picture of sexuality and how it all fits, mm. and and then we can understand uh, better the teachings of, of of the church on this topic. I'm just still mm. fascinated that you, as a pastor, was um, open to to listening to these theology body teachings i mean how did you what 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 was it you were invited you were, were you a little bit skeptical at the start of how yeah like um, to understand oh, a bit it of was, that. yeah it, look it wasn't presented to me just as as here's a catholic guy talking about yeah. stuff and so <laughs> have you heard about this theology of the body and i was always interested in theology um and i think the other the other piece that's important with my own journey is i've always had the view um well before i even begun um, in exploring Catholicism, that the truth, you just got to search for the truth wh wherever it leads you and you've got to be open to whatever the truth is um, because as soon as you stop being open to truth, then that's when you get set in your ways, it's when you become unteachable, it's when you stop learning, um, but it's also when you stop discovering and you start just protecting what you already know or what you already have. And so my view has always been that the, the truth will speak for itself and so mm. we don't have to fear um you know, this is before I was Catholic, right? Just, I mean, broadly speaking, as Christians, we don't have to fear discussions about what is true because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that reality will speak for itself. Now, of course, that openness to truth, uh, I, I didn't expect it to land me in the Catholic Church, right? But, um, but it meant that I was certainly open to hearing about this uh, concept of theology of the body. Um, and what that did for me a little bit is, is to go, well, if, they're, if they've got something that's so enlightening and, and so fascinating um at this level what else is there and i mean you've we've talked about this before a little bit but i discovered authors like scott hahn and and uh and peter kreeft uh, i mean kreeft was probably the key instigator for me I, I don't know that i would have been catholic unless i discovered kreeft's podcast and started listening to it and listening to it over and over again and then realizing that he was catholic um, <laughs> and he just opened my brain to a, a new way of thinking about um, you know, history about philosophy, about the church, because he had come from the Reformed Church himself. He did his undergrad at Calvin College. Uh, um, he could speak a language that resonated with me. Yes. Uh, and he just got me really interested then. He's got a great summary of the catechism called Catholic Christianity. Um, it's basically like the, the, the catechism that's in, in easy language, less theological language, but um, also with a bit of an apologetic edge and a bit of a philosophical spin. Right. Um, one of his 95 books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it, it's one of the best, but, you know, I've read a okay. few Greek books uh, and he, he does bring um, some of the same ideas through in different books and he's assuming he's got a broad audience. Um, yes. You know, so sometimes you see the same thing, whereas the Catholic Christianity one is particularly good because it's almost his 
his paraphrased version of it, which is really lively and it's it's got a lot of breadth. It's a great book. It's one I'd always recommend if uh, Protestants are interested in understanding Catholicism. So the, the next the, the next two parts to that, so the theology of the body and, and Father Jordan had opened me up to Catholics. Yes. The theology of the body was one of the, fir- the, the three big pillars for my conversion journey. The second one was the Eucharist. Um, you know, as a Protestant pastor, you're, you're preaching about uh, from Scripture and you get to John 6 and Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then he says it like three times and the, and the crowd want to leave and then the disciples want to leave and, and Jesus says to the disciples, do you want to go as well? And they say, well, where else are we going to go? So they stay. <laughs> um, it's very difficult to put a spiritual spin on that text, you know, like if Jesus yeah. was just talking metaphorically, then he could have just said to the crowd, hey, hold, hold up, hold, I don't mean literally, right? I just, it, it's it's a... It's a word play, right? Um, he would have said it, something, wouldn't he? Yeah. Well, you, you'd keep yeah. the crowd, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, right. and, and then here is at the Last Supper. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. Um, he doesn't say, this is like my body. Um, and as I started reading uh, the Catholic understanding of, of the Eucharist and then comparing it to all the scriptures that I'd sometimes wrestled with, and then, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says, you know, it, it, you have to discern the, the body and blood when you drink this or you're not you're not and when you participate in the um the eucharistic celebration otherwise it's it's not valid like it's actually yes. a problem for you and so i started to realize that the catholic version was actually more consistent with scripture uh than the uh the protestant version that i've grown grown up in and then i started to do the church history on it and reading church fathers and you realize that you know i'm on the wrong side of history so to speak all, all the church fathers recognize the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, and that view was pretty consistent uh, with the exception of a few in, I think, the, the ninth or 10th century that sort of challenged it. But really that was the, the teaching of the church uh, across the history right up until the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so I realized that that uh, I, I had to accept that. And, of course, if you accept the Eucharist, it changes everything about what you understand in liturgy as well. Because if, if the if the bread and the wine are literally Christ's body and blood, then everything in, in a church service, as we, we would call it as Protestants, has got to lead towards the encounter with Christ's body and blood. Now, where do you find that? In the Mass, right? This is why our liturgy builds with the liturgy of the Word and it builds towards that encounter with Jesus' real, real body and real blood in the Mass. It's the power of the Mass. It makes sense of the Mass. If you understand the real presence, then the Mass makes sense. If you don't, it's got a heck of a lot of talking in it, right? <laughs> uh, so that's the uh, the difference um, because in the Protestant world, if you don't recognise the real presence, then communion's an add-on and the key things that you do in a church service are you praise God, you sing to God, you tell God you, you love him. Now, you know, a little aside, but because that's such a central part of, of Protestant spirituality, their music is excellent. It's well-produced. Yeah, their songwriting is beautiful. Uh, and they do it really, really well. Um, and then the key part of the message is often of the service is the, the sermon, which goes for 30 minutes rather than, you know, 10. Um, but it's usually delivered with a fair bit of, um, you know, um, charisma is the wrong word because it immediately makes people think of charismatic in a, in a, mm-hmm. in a particular style. But, it, you know, the, the, the level of communication skill is pretty high and pretty engaging. Um, but when you go yeah. 30 minutes, you can bring a lot of your everyday life illustrations into that. Um, 
And so it means that you've got to try and help people encounter God through music and through talking rather than through that sacramental lived experience. And once you start to see the sacraments and the power of the sacraments, then the whole faith moves from, you know, having the the the, uh, the icons of music. You know, we have icons yeah. and the yeah. icon of music and, you know, the encounter with God in, in music and in prayer to a real physical, visceral encounter with Christ's body in the bread and Christ's blood in the wine. And and that just changes the whole thing. And and so that leads then, so once I've got the Eucharist, then it, then it gets to the pillar three, <laughs> which is church authority. So this is um, quite interesting. And now you're still practising you, uh, as a pastor at this time. You, you've you sort of knocked one, the whole idea of contraception in that context of theology of the body. You've got um, now this realisation, the real presence, and, and, and looking at the church fathers, which you may have read before, right, and many Protestant um, um, leaders uh, are familiar with the church fathers. They read it, but is this, there's something about that um, area about the eucharist do we sort of put the blinkers on and d- d- just don't read it in yeah yeah how did Look, you read think, it at one stage and then all of a sudden it popped out at you um, well i mean t- to be straight like I mean, a lot of protestant pastors don't read church fathers and if they okay. do it, it's a little bit of augustine okay, um, okay because augustine was so influential in luther and so because luther references augustine then augustine's brought into that but i mean everyone from Poly- polycarp to clement to irenaeus and Ignatius and all of those names were not familiar to me, Athanasius, Anselm. They were not familiar to me uh, before I began reading Fathers. Um, and so you can read parts of Augustine. I mean, Augustine's kind of chief work is is more about uh, the, the relationship with with God, which is unpacked in the Confessions, which is his primary work, right? So yeah, you, can, yeah. you can miss a lot of what Augustine says just by reading the Confessions. Um, so a lot of this was new to me then. A lot of these authors were new to me. Okay. Okay. Now that answers that question. But yeah. then authority um, and yeah. sort of, uh, um, I mean, was that quite daunting or was it a bit confronting thinking, ah, oh, there's no way well, this Pope is going to have authority <laughs> over me? <laughs> well, I think that the thing is that the sacramental life and, in fact, Catholic ecclesiology is it hinges on authority, right? Um mm-hmm. And once you understand the Eucharist, it raises all kinds of questions. If you're a Protestant minister and you understand the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, it raises the question then of, of who can consecrate and what constitutes valid consecration. You know, if you're at home having a meal and you say the, the words of consecration over a bread at the table, does it become Christ's body and blood or not? <laughs> you know, yeah. so... Yeah. What happens is, broadly speaking, a lot of Protestants would say, oh, well, that's how you have communion. You know, you, you can do that communion because it, because it's bringing, bringing to the present the memory of Christ's death and resurrection and the Last Supper, but it's not literally Christ's body and blood. Um, so if you're a pastor, which I was, and, you know, I, I remember a distinct memory of, of leading the, the community in communion and I'd read from John 6 and I'd read the words of consecration and I was sitting there thinking, I don't believe the same things about this as my community does. And also, can I actually consecrate? Like, what authority do I have to, can I, is this, <laughs> what am I even doing? <laughs> you know? um, wow. <laughs> and it's also that question too of, and I, I found the same problem with, with preaching. You know, I'd, I'd preach from the scriptures and, I, I mean, I was born and bred on, uh, just raised 
with scripture all the time. You know, it's something that's been a part of my life since a very young age. Um, so I know scripture really well, uh, and I thank my parents for that upbringing because it's a great strength, um, and it helps you to call out some of the um, ideology that gets thrown around in the Catholic circle sometimes <laughs> when you can just tell that someone is, it means well, but they obviously haven't read scripture because they, they don't understand, uh, you know, a key yeah, part common. of the, the source of our theology. Um, but what happens is then you're preaching from scripture and, and then you're starting to think, how do I have the authority to interpret this passage in this particular way? Um, can I really do that? Uh, and that's a really confronting thing. You know, I had friends that were pastors and, and they, well, even in the church that I was in, its, it's view was um, believer's baptism. So you didn't get baptised until you actually made a decision yourself to follow Jesus. Now, that's an extraordinarily brave decision to make. If you're in a telecommunity, don't baptise your infants. Let them make a decision and let them get baptised themselves. Now, like yeah, if, if yeah. you think about the seriousness of that, if baptism literally joins you in Christ's body and blood, uh, it, sorry, it, it joins you in his death and resurrection and you, you rise with Christ in baptism and it, 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 it pulls you into Christ's life so that through baptism you are in Christ and you are in the church and through baptism, you are therefore in the way, the truth, and the life. You're going to hold that from your child until they're 15, and you're going to take the risk that maybe they uh, will make a decision or not. Now, that's a really brave thing. Once you understand what baptism is and then yeah, you understand yeah. the gravity of the decision that you're making over the, the 500 or so people that might be in your community, that was doing my head in. I was like, this is, who are we to say this, you know? Well, um, so it meant then that I started to refer to the catechism, not directly in, in my my homilies, but at least looking to see what, what the Catholic Church actually taught on something because at least it had an authority structure that I, I felt some sort of safety in. Um, Did anyone pick up on this in the congregation? The, were, were people worried at all? They're saying this sounds a bit Catholic or or they just were embracing it? They really Oh, well, I think it... Um, of course, it depends on the language that you use. And if you start off by saying the, Catholic, the catechism of the Catholic Church, well, that doesn't yeah. help. Um, <laughs> or if you start off by saying, well, Pope Benedict says. Yeah. Um, but if you refer to a, theologi a theologian called Joseph Ratzinger or a uh, theologian called uh, Carol Waitola, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, <laughs> they, don't, they don't know those Polish and German names. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other part of that is, you know, if, sometimes we have far too much emphasis on what who it is who's speaking rather than C.S. Lewis used to talk about this. The question is not who says it or is it popular. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is it true? Yes. Is it yes. true? It doesn't matter who says it. Is it true? You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a, it's a bishop or a lay person saying it. You can say something that's false if you're a bishop and you can say something that's false if you're a lay person and you can say something that's true as a bishop and you can say something that's true as a lay person. And, our, our awareness of that has to, because the, the, the truth cuts through, right? And so I was taking truths and, and communicating them in the way that people could see um, and in a way that they could understand. And so if someone who's open to truth is okay with that. But, of course, you've you got to be careful which ones uh, you bring into the fray. Like <laughs> if, you, if you started to, to talk about the, um, you know, uh, Mary as the mother of God, and her uh, her immaculateness, <laughs> you might raise some eyebrows. So, so okay. How how um how long was this journey? Um, these three pillars that you talk about. 
Uh, was it over a span of three years, two years, one year? Um, how long? Uh, no, that was it was probably about eight years, I reckon, from when eight I first years. Okay. discovered, you know, Kreeft and then theology of the body, and then and then moving through all those questions. You know, I was just talking about the fact that bishops are fallible, and you mm-hmm. know, so is the, the Pope, right? And sometimes Protestants think that everything that comes out of the Pope's mouth is like the same authority as Scripture. Um, that's what you know. That's the problem, yeah, big, right? So yeah, the Pope's yeah, infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, but but not when he's you know in the plane <laughs> coming right. back from World Youth Day. <laughs> that's right. Um, or who's going to win a, a particular uh, sport match or, or, or opinion? Yeah, yeah. Like he, he's actually a human being, yeah. right? Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so when you properly understand what the Church teaches on a whole range of things, you know. So one of them is the role of the Pope. Um, why is that important? Another one that, you know, like the typical bugbears for, for um, Protestants uh, and the things that I had to overcome were the teachings around purgatory, uh, what, how purgatory mm-hmm. is understood, um, the role of Mary and the idea of praying to Mary and praying to saints and how that's properly understood, um, the distinction between, uh, you know, praying through uh, and asking Mary to pray for us um, compared with treating Mary and the saints as though they are little gods going around answering our prayers, which is sometimes how it's pitched um, by Protestants. And so it's just getting clarity on, on Catholic doctrine. And so, and what I found at the beginning of the, of um, Scott Hahn's book, Rome, home, was it Rome Street? Sweet Rome home. Sweet Home. That's right. Yes. He's got that great quote in the, in the beginning. that says something to the effect of um, something like uh, most people can't stand the Catholic Church or what they think the Catholic Church is. That's right. Yes. And it's because they don't actually know what it is. That's uh, right. And, and when they actually discover what it is, they find it's not what they thought it was. And, yeah, it's something to that effect. I've completely misquoted that. But but that was the case for me, right? My understanding of the Catholic Church and what the church believed was just um, it was polemical and it was caricatured. Um, and then when I discovered it, in my hunger for truth, I found the answers to my frustrations and my questions as a Protestant were found in the Catholic Church. And so in the end, I had to give in and go, all right, wow. I surrender. I, I'm not the Pope. I will, I will surrender to the Pope's authority. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, locally that has implications as well because we sit, you know, the thing that unites me as a deacon and gives me authority as a deacon to, to bless people or to preach or to baptise mm-hmm. is, is the bishop, right? And the bishop has that authority because he's given it from the Pope. And so we're united through that. And therefore, there's an authority structure that I need to work within uh, as a deacon. And, and this is true for all priests in any diocese in terms of their relationship to a local bishop. It's amazing, isn't it? This international church we're part of. Um, mm. I, uh, we've got 10 minutes and I'm conscious. I really want to dive into a bit about um, a thesis you've recently done in the season we're in leading up to Pentecost. But very quickly, I, I just think people are... I don't want to leave people um, uh, without answering this question. The moment you faced your congregation um, that day uh, and you had to, you made a decision to become Catholic. Um, can you just, I mean, I think that's something that people are probably very curious about. And then your wife um, and your family situation, uh, mm-hmm. just your, your, your friends. Tell us a bit about this, that moment. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, people don't, necessarily understand it you know so there was sort of a bit of bewilderment um and sort of after it was announced people came to me and said oh so are you are you going to like be a missionary to the catholics uh, <laughs> i said convert them <laughs> no no i'm, I'm going to be one uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm joining them i'm not yeah. trying to get them to, to join us <laughs> oh, oh. 
that's weird. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, look, I had a, a range of responses. I mean, my closest friends all knew that I was on that journey, and so mm. it was no surprise to them. Um, uh, my mum remained friends I, with them. Have you kept? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. one of them's become Catholic uh, himself right. uh, since then, um, and uh, another uh, is, you know. Uh, he, he thinks like a Catholic now. He just hasn't crossed the tide okay. yet. Uh, so he's very, very much open. Yeah. Um, and then uh, my mum also knew that I'd been on this journey because I'd been sharing a lot of what I'd been learning, sharing a lot of the Parousia CDs with her. She's, nice. she's listened to many of those ones I've, I've had from you, Scott Hahn and uh, Steve Fantastic. Bray and yes. um, Edward Stree and uh, a whole bunch of your guys. Um, so uh, it was no surprise to her. It was a bit of a surprise to my in-laws. They didn't really understand it. Um, and, and my dad was uh, very much nonplussed about the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've worked on that. We've continued to talk and, uh, yeah, I think we're, um, we're getting better at understanding each other there. So um, yeah. some, some people out there, you know, literally told me that I was going to go to hell for this. So. <laughs> yeah, wow. wow. <laughs> I said, yeah. well, thank the Lord. You are not God. Yeah, <laughs> you are right. not the judge, <laughs> and and so I don't have to stress too much. <laughs> Look, uh, thank. I mean, I'll, thank you for saying yes and, and and yes to the truth and and giving up so much. Let's be real, uh, as human on the human side, you're giving up so much. Your your career, the whole lot, everything you knew up to that point, but now you come into this whole new world as a Catholic, tr- finding work, um, all these sort of things, um, finding your place, so to speak. Would have been different. Getting new circle of friends, uh, new community, trying to build a new community. Uh, it's been difficult, right? I mean, I remember. I mean, the church is a big place with yeah, yeah, lots of variety. <laughs> of, of oh, of, totally, of, yeah. And look, I mean, the thing that I absolutely love about the Catholic Church and is, I mean, we have the most beautiful and excellent and defendable theology and philosophy of any Christian tradition, no question. Like, it's just by far the most rigorous and defendable. It's, it's outstanding. It's excellent. It's honest. It's open. It's nuanced. Amen. It's brilliant, right? Um, Amen. And that's what really attracted me. What I discovered coming into the church, but is that our, our practice of our faith is pretty ordinary <laughs> as a generalization, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and that's proven just by the statistics, you know. I mean, in our diocese, we've got about four or 500,000 that would, um, identify as, as Catholic because they've been baptised in about 60,000, 70,000 in mass on the weekend. Um, the, the other challenge too is that, you know, typically our communities are, are not good at, at, at being confident in our Catholic identity. We mm-hmm. don't do a lot of work in discipleship. So we, we prepare people for the sacraments and then that's about it. You know, you've done First Communion, you've done Confirmation, Ripper, done. <clears throat> There's no formation unless people seek things like your your podcasts and your um your resources out but in the local parish there's often not always and i'm talking in general terms here sure, but sure. we're not doing a great deal of work in in discipling um lay people and we're not doing a lot of work around um building community in parishes you know like and and that's where there's actually a lot we can learn from the protestants not theologically but in terms of practice how do you build community how do you make young families feel connected and loved and supported um and you know we've got the the most beautiful uh, theology of marriage and family and we've got the least amount of children's ministry and facilities in our parishes of any tradition um and that's like just a massive contradiction in terms and so we've got a heck of a lot of work to do in in 
actually taking what we have, you know, our beautiful faith and bringing it to life and actually doing it, like live it, you know. Yes. If, if yes. you live the Catholic faith, it is compelling, you know, it's beautiful. Uh, it's just hard to find it lived. <laughs> um, and we don't, have, we don't have a culture that encourages, encourages it to be lived out uh, and we don't support people well that are living it out. Um, and so, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. And there's always exceptions, so don't hear me as shooting down everyone there and everything. But, you know, if you compare what we're doing in terms of community building and engagement to a lot of Protestant communities, we, we can do it um, a lot better. Um, the power that we have is the sacramental life and the theology that undergirds those things. So if we can do our engagement, our community, our evangelising, our discipleship well, we've got the substructures necessary for that to really explode. The word discipleship uh, probably uh, very misunderstood in the Catholic Church, not very commonly used across the mainstream uh, church, across across the board. I mean, many who, who do embrace it and understand it are, are very active and doing great things, but many people still are probably discovering what that means for them um and mm-hmm. can we uh, and um, we're in our last five minutes here trying to sort of zone in on the feast room we're leading up to pentecost mm-hmm. what was it that jesus did to the disciples to invite them when he said go make disciples of all nations and mm-hmm. what is that commissioning and what was the power that he gave them uh if we yeah. can touch on that in, in this season we're in perfect so i think um What's fascinating, if you look at Scripture, the first thing that Jesus says to the disciples, it's in Mark chapter 1, I think about verse 15, he's calling the disciples. He says, repent, believe, the kingdom of God is near. And then he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, yes. right? Or, uh, you know, to be gender inclusive, fishers of people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what that tells you is that the purpose that Jesus has in calling followers is to make them not just disciples of Jesus, but to make other disciples of Jesus. So the purpose of your baptism is not just for your own salvation. The purpose of your baptism is so that you can join Jesus in in the mission to make disciples of all nations. So the first thing he says to disciples is, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The last thing he says in the ascension is, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've taught you so that it will go well with you, right? Matthew 28, was it 18 to 20 or something? And then he, he says in Mark uh, Acts 1a, he says, but stay here and wait until and pray until you receive power from on high, right? So the first thing he says is I'm going to make you fishers of the men. The last thing he says is go make disciples, right? So yes. you've done your training, time for the mission to begin, but wait until you receive power. So Jesus ascends up to heaven. The disciples are waiting. It's in the middle of the Feast of Weeks, right? The feast of the Jewish Feast of Weeks is seven weeks of uh, uh, seven days. Yeah, it's seven weeks, right? So it's seven okay. sevens, which is 49. Yes. Okay, and on the 50th day is what we call Pentecost. It's the culmination of that Feast of Weeks. So it's a big moment in the, um, in the Jewish liturgical calendar where lots of people are in Jerusalem. It's a big feast. Uh, there's everyone there. The, the, the disciples have been in this upper room for these 10 days, you know, praying and waiting for this power to come. But Jesus has said, wait until you receive power and then you will be my witnesses. So what happens? They wait. The Holy Spirit comes. There's wind in the room. They get, you know, these tongues of fire on their heads. And all of a sudden they begin to preach um, in all kinds of languages so that everybody who's in their area can hear the gospel in their own language. And it, it just explodes in missionary impulse. Like from that moment in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the church just explodes, the missionary activity of the Literally, church explodes. Yes. So as we come to Pentecost, the whole point of, of this infilling of the Holy Spirit, again, is not just 
for us to feel good and go, oh, God is with me. I can feel the presence of God. But it's to go and make disciples. It's to be bold in our faith. It's to be bold in our identity as Catholics and to say, you know, God wants a relationship with you. He loves you. He's given us a church to to be the conduit of that relationship. He gives himself to you in the sacraments. Come and discover the beauty that God has in his church for you, right? So it's, it's all about missionary impulse. And it's connected very specifically to the sacrament of confirmation. And if you read the um, the apostolic constitution, in the um, it's in the rite of confirmation at the beginning. It was by Paul VI, I think, one of the popes anyway. <laughs> he very, very clearly links it to... Um, links confirmation to Pentecost. And so you receive the Holy Spirit so that you can go and be a part of the mission of Christ to make disciples of all nations. Amen. Amen. Well, yeah. let's let's prepare. I mean, we're out of time. I've got to get you back on um, down the track and um, maybe we can dive into it, sort of start with that and then open up for q and I'm just so, I'm just so curious. I think so many people want to ask questions about just all those things. That yeah, great. Know, the Eucharist and purgatory and the saints. And we'd love to, unpack that and get your perspective on all that but um maybe we can get you later in the year to do all that have a bit of yeah, fun yeah for sure um, oh, it's, it's easy to do by zoom yeah, so yeah this is great makes it easier yeah yeah uh, well uh, one of the um this is how god turns a, 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 a i guess a curse into a blessing <laughs> um here we are now forced to use the internet and and one one way people can do it the pentecost pilgrimage is one great initiative mm-hmm. uh martin Breton doing great work there uh you spoke on it recently um, and it, it was two weeks ago, I think it was, you had your um, uh, talk on there and there's still another two and a half weeks to go uh, for this this pilgrimage. It's quite a great idea, um, mm. virtually um, journeying with, with the Holy Spirit right up to Pentecost. I'm recording literally today the, the recording that will be um, shown on Sunday. So right. uh, looking forward to that, sharing my story, uh, how Islam led me back to Christ. It's now finally awesome. available. But um, awesome. uh that's that's happening. So I encourage everyone to get onto PentecostPilgrimage.com, register mm. completely free, and you've got the next two weeks um, to take advantage of. And then once it's over, you'll have access to to these talks as well um, ongoing and um, more information about that soon. But not too late to register. Two weeks to go to Pentecost. Make sure you register and take advantage. We are out of time. I, I just want more time yeah. with you. But um, I want to thank you very much uh, for joining uh, still getting used to calling you a deacon, <laughs> but, uh, but I wonder <laughs> if we can. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but if we can um, close, uh, deacons can bless, right? And many people absolutely uh, yeah misinterpret that. But maybe we can close with a deacon's blessing to all the viewers sure. and listeners. Um, if you can, all right. Let's do that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you, be gracious to you and give you his peace. May God bless you on this pilgrimage to Pentecost. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this is another Perusia podcast. Uh, I encourage you to go to our website, perusiamedia.com. Also subscribe to all the different podcast platforms, whatever suits you. We're on the YouTube platform, on our website, Facebook, you name it. Uh, it's all there. Um, and subscribe and spread the word. Please do that. We're here every week. There's at least one or two shows a week going up on the on that platform. So thanks again, everybody. Uh, pray for us. You're in our prayers. And that's another show. God bless. Bye.